So I'm standing in my own space in the world unapologetically. I am being in the world as myself, and it feels effing amazing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Healing Cassandra podcast. I'm your host, Margot Alexis. Well, buckle up. You're in for a great hour. I'm really excited to share this podcast with you. My guest is Sally, and Sally is at a crossroad in her life. She's contemplating divorcing her ASD husband. Like many of us, Sally reached a breaking point, and she realized that things needed to change in order for her to live the life that she deserves. In this episode, Sally shares her journey of how she took her life back. She's an inspiration, and her story is a reminder to all of us that change is possible. Enjoy. So welcome, Sally. Thank you. It's good to be here talking to you today. Thank you. I'm happy you're here. Let's back up to the beginning. Um, How did you meet your husband, and how long have you been married? We met, actually, I'm a singer-songwriter, and I was playing a show in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he was there. Um, He was 19, and I was 26, and we struck up a relationship that was around music, and everything in our lives has continued to be around music ever since then. We've been married for 20 years. Oh, and you met when you were young, and he was younger than than you. What a track. <laughs> Good for you. What attracted you to your husband? I guess his tenacity, his energy. He has this really passionate, creative energy about him. And he always just seemed to know what he wanted. It was actually infuriating because I was this little hippie chick going around to coffee shops and playing my music and kind of floating. And I was terrified of everything. And I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know what was safe and what wasn't. And so I was just trying to feel my way forward. And he just seemed to know. And while it was it was equally infuriating and attractive, because I I was so unsteady that I wanted somebody that knew what they were doing, even though he was still a teenager when we met. You know, um, I've heard other women talk about that they're attracted to their husbands because they are the anchor. I know that's the same thing. I'm like you, a creative. I went to a creative arts school and my husband's the engineer. So that's what attracted, you know, the opposites attract. I felt that he could round out my creativeness. Do you have Mm -hmm. any children? We have three. Our daughter is 18 and we have two sons, 15 and 10. And when did you realize something um, was amiss with your husband that he may have traits of being on the spectrum? That's a really, it's really difficult because um, it is a spectrum and they're so different and it isn't something we hear information about, but I have had a best friend that I actually met six months after we got married and she was always just a very, very difficult relationship. And in way into her adulthood, when she found, because she was 18 when I met her too. And so when 
she became an adult and had children and started realizing, wait, there's something going on with her kids. She realized they were on the spectrum and her oldest son is not high functioning. He's, he's autistic and will have to be helped, but it let her understand she was on the spectrum. And so then through understanding her and seeing, oh, okay, this is what this looks like. These are the traits. This is what's going on. I was like, that sounds just like my husband. Wow. Like, and so over the years, I just, when we would talk, I would hear her say, these are the struggles between me and my husband. And I would think, well, that's the same as me and my husband just flipped. And so it was, it was always the kind of thing where I'm like, oh yeah, he's totally on the spectrum, kind of like that. But then about a year ago, maybe even less, maybe just six months ago, it finally hit me. Wait a minute, hold up. I actually think he is on the spectrum and it matters because it's causing this cascade of reactions that I've been coping with and didn't understand what was happening. So it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like this slow dawning of, of light in a dark room because five years ago, maybe six now, I came to this understanding that my mother is a narcissist and all the struggle that I had with my mom and that my family had around my mother and the way that everything navigated around keeping her calm and making her not freak out and all the things that she would do, I realized she's a narcissist. And when that piece came together for me, I started looking at my husband and he's my closest relationship. And so many of the things that I felt with her, I also felt with him. And so it was kind of like this confusing, I don't know, is he a narcissist? Is he on the spectrum? What's happening? You know, so it's been this back and forth And I think that's really common from what I've been seeing on the forums that I'm involved with and listening to the women who have the diagnosis of ASD for their husbands or narcissism or different things. They say that they often go hand in hand and it feels the same. And that Cassandra syndrome, which is what we're all talking about here, is really because of the lack of reciprocity that comes from either one of those situations. Sally, you said that so beautifully, and and I know a lot of women feel like that way, including myself. I spent many years saying, mm-hmm. I'm a narcissist. I read every book out there on narcissism because it felt, you know, the same way, the lack of reciprocity, mm-hmm. feeling very selfish, um, and, and it is very confusing. Narcissists, you know, tend to not have a conscience of what they're doing. Whereas, you know, ASD, they just can't help it. It's a developmental disorder, but we don't, it feels all the same to us. Right. Right. And so I was thinking about how I've spent so much time researching and reading, just like you said, it's like, is he a narcissist? Is he a covert narcissist? Is he a covert passive aggressive narcissist? Is he on the spectrum? Is he high functioning? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like all of these things. And I got sucked into this vortex of trying to figure out what was going on with him because I felt like now I'm now looking at it. I understand that what I was trying to do was I was thinking that if I could diagnose him myself, like if I could figure this out, then I would know how to proceed with him. 
But then what I understood very recently is that what I was trying to do was manage him. And then I realized I don't want to live my life managing another human being. We raise our children and they can't manage themselves while they're young. But the goal is to teach them self-regulation and self-management. And then at some point they take over, right? So I don't want to spend the rest of my life managing a grown man. Like that's not my job. And I don't know why fully, I don't know why I believed for so long that it was apart from being raised in a, under really intense narcissistic abuse, spiritual abuse, emotional, sexual abuse, and thinking that I had to control the world around me or I wouldn't be safe. And that's a really big deal for so many women is I have to manage this so I will be safe. And that is the only answer. I am the only safe place. And that's something I learned in EMDR therapy, which I'd love to talk about at some point. But coming to that understanding that I have to be safe and I cannot trust this other human being who I don't know what is going on with, but I cannot give my most tender heart to this person who I don't know if he knows how to manage it or not. And it doesn't look like it. So let me manage it. But then I came to this place where I just, after 20 years, I'm exhausted. I'm done. I'm tapped out. I cannot continue. And I read this book a couple of times over the years called Love is a Choice. And it talks about codependency and it talks about magical thinking being such a big aspect of a codependent behavior and how magical thinking is when you keep doing the same things and you think, oh, it'll change. I can, you know, eventually at some point, this will be different. It will get better. This will stop. I'll stop hurting, you know, and, but you, to change a situation, you have to make a choice. And there's all this stuff that I learned about how to make a choice and that I have a choice to make over the past five years that I can talk about if you want to hear my process on choices. But it, that is what has led me to where I am today, right now, this moment. Yes, and that's a lot. How insightful um, of a process that you've gone through. So it sounds like this has been heavy on your heart for the past five years. No, it's I've been in therapy, counseling, prayer ministry, any kind of church, because I grew up in the church. I've worked in the church all my adult life. It's something that I've been in and out of forever, been a worship pastor on and off you know, Christian musician, all the things. And so I, for the first 10 years, I searched within the church for therapy that would help me heal. And I got a measure of healing there. And so, but it's been 15 years that I've been going after something isn't okay. This isn't okay. I'm in pain. I can't seem to break out of this. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I'm afraid. I don't feel safe. I feel alone. And part of that was my childhood and the abuse there. And part of it was the stuff that was happening in my marriage that I couldn't pin down because I couldn't get my head straight about it. So 10 years of therapy, the counseling in the church and prayer ministry and stuff of that nature, and then five years with a clinical counselor who is licensed to do EMDR therapy. 
And so through the process of that, I stopped dissociating and I was able to begin to make more clear choices and to begin to see, wait a minute, I don't like this, what's happening in my marriage. I don't like my life right now. I don't like the way this goes. I feel completely disrespected. I feel completely bowled over. I feel overrun and like I don't have a voice. And so for the past five years, it's been this process of putting a voice to my pain and allowing the parts of me that had been shut down by the abuse to begin to speak. And to do that, I started to understand that I had to tell the truth about what I felt and what I really thought and then begin to say those things out loud. But the problem is that when you begin to say what you really think and how you really feel out loud to the people that it matters to, that the relationship is based in this intimate place, things begin to change. And change is really, really terrifying. I want to comment on and congratulate you on being brave enough to do the deep work. Because when you do the deep work, that's when you know you start to see the truth. And yeah. you can do that. And then for you to take action and say, you know what? This isn't okay with me. I don't right. like life. You know, that's the big leap. And that's the the leap of faith. And that comes from going deep in yourself and building yourself up and, and kind of clearing the cobwebs out and getting walking out of the fog. Was there one tipping point or did you just wake up? Yeah. Today is the day. No, there really was a tipping point. And it's, you know, um, it's interesting because I had this picture when I woke up this morning of being in a giant sandbox and that the bottom of it is a sieve, like a sifter, like a flower sifter. And I'm in this sandbox and I'm the ground under me is sifting and changing and was falling out from under my feet. And it just feels like that's how quickly everything and all of the things that I believed and thought and based everything on has been changing and shifting. And it has felt like I'm really out of control of it. But what I understand is that when you begin the cho- the choices, when you begin to say, no, I'm not going to accept this anymore, then things begin to rapidly erode and change. And that forward momentum can feel like you're strapped onto the front of a speeding train and like you're you're just done for. But the thing that triggered that that fine because I'm like, yeah, okay, I can put up with this and my children. I'm not going to split up my family. This isn't ever going to happen. I've watched it happen over and over. It's no, I'm not going to go there. They are my priority forever. Like I would rather die. But then I realized I am kind of dying and I, I, they deserve to have a mother. They deserve me. They deserve somebody who's at peace and who has clarity and who is living a full and joyous life that can pour love that I have to give into them, right? They deserve that. So it was a conversation that I had. I And I had read a book called The Covert Passive Aggressive Narcissist. And it was like reading a checklist of our marriage. And I'm like, okay, I have to make some changes. And The day I I was like, okay, I have to do this. And I started formulating a little plan 
of, you know, well, if I begin to make these changes, it's very possible he's going to bolt because that's what all the narcissism literature says, that if you take away your supply, they become unstable and they will leave. They'll discard you and pick up another supply. So I'm like, okay, well, let's test this out. Right. So um, the next day after I'm like, okay, I have to make some changes, started formulating a, a small plan. He had a meltdown over a very a typical household thing about the dogs being outside barking at people. And he flew into a rage and started pointing that at me. And I'm sitting there and I have my headphones in and I do the noise cancellation and I'm like, I'm not listening. La, la, la. I don't have to listen. And then it was like, wait a minute, I don't even have to sit here. I don't have to absorb this angry energy. That's not something I have to do. So I just simply got up and walked out and got in my car and drove down the road. Well, I didn't have my phone. And so he flipped out and thought in his head that meant I was leaving him. And he took my son to work with him. He left to go to work. He didn't know if I was coming back or not ever, which isn't crazy to me to, for him to like jump to that conclusion, but okay. And so I come back home and we have this conversation and I'm like, Hey, I honest to God left my phone. It's okay. Let me come get our son. He's 10. I know you're at work. Let me pick him up. And he says, no, I don't trust you. And it shot through me like, oh my God, I'm sorry, what? And I didn't react. I stayed calm. And because I I knew if I put up a boundary, he will have a reaction. I just didn't expect it to be like this total unraveling moment. And I'm like, uh, no, honey, I'll come get our kid like I'll come pick him up it's not a problem and he goes no I you're not coming to get him and then he just it kind of devolves into him saying things like I don't you know should I even bother coming home and should we even be living together anymore and I'm like oh my god in my head I'm thinking 24 hours less than 24 hours after I decide I'm not going to put up with this and I'm going to put up a boundary he's talking about not letting me come get my son and leaving and it was just like this moment and I got through the conversation we hung up the phone I kept it to logistics and this the instant we got off the phone I made a uh, contacted my therapist and asked for a reference for a lawyer and I got all the alcohol out of my house and I took it to my friends because I drink and he doesn't and I didn't like, okay, I don't want anything that he could possibly use against me to be able to hold up. So he, cause he has not taken my kids. And that was first and foremost. And that was the point where I'm like, regardless of what happens, I will not be caught in a place where I cannot defend myself, protect myself, or take care of me and my children. It is not going to happen. No. And so I set about a plan. I op- I went the next couple of days. I opened up a P.O. box. I took out a loan with the bank to pay off all my credit cards, which I got. I had never gotten a loan like that before. I'm just really, really, really thrilled. Um, and I made a plan to find a rental house. I started looking for rentals. I, you know, I started budgeting things. And all of this was because if I 
withdraw that amount and he flips out that hard, there's no telling what he would do. And so I made a plan. Good for you. And that's what it's about. It's, it's about making a plan and, you know, it's so easy to curl up in, in the fetal position and, you know, let the emotion take over. And yeah. you were really strong. You said, you know what, I'm going to take care of business and I'm going to make a plan. And does he, did he have a history of meltdowns? With you? He, he, you know, that's part of the reason why I keep going back to the spectrum thing. I keep going back there because his anxiety levels and his overwhelm will cause this crushing reaction inside of him that comes out in this anger and this explosive kind of meltdown blow up moment. And the kids have been subject to it and I've been subject to it. So yeah, he's had, he's always, and if something like, like getting a ticket, or something like that. And then it was never anything he did. It was that cop or it was this other person or, you know, it was always somebody else's fault or responsibility, like the dogs being outside. He came back in and started yelling at me, even though he had said he was going to go put them in the pen. You know, it's like simple things like that. He would just come in and bellow and bolster. And he's this great big two, you know, six foot two guy and he just towers over me. I'm like five one. I'm a good foot shorter than him. And, you know, he, he doesn't, I don't believe that he means to intimidate me, but is incredibly intimidating. And I've been afraid of him for a very long time, not because he's ever been physical, but just because his energy is so forceful. And I would tell him, you don't need to yell. You don't need to be that forceful. I'm really soft. You don't have to do that. But then reading about the anxiety triggers with the spectrum, I started to see, okay, I see that he's anxious right now. So I'm not going to approach him about some practical thing that I need done, you know, because those little things would just set him off, you know, and there's part of that is learning how to work with somebody with where they are. And another part of that is managing somebody, you know, the other side of that coin is managing somebody to avoid tension and confrontation and to try to not be afraid, you know? So it's, it's a balancing thing that I worked for a really long time to try and figure out. But I came to the place recently where I told him that what I wanted was for him to go to therapy because I've been in therapy all this time. I've been doing all the work I can possibly wrap my head around doing, but it's his turn. He has to do his work. He, because for better or worse, we have children together and we have to stay connected. We're bonded forever. Now, whatever that bond looks like is really up to him and it's up to me. But I said, you're I want you to go to therapy and you figure out whatever issues it is that you have and then work on those. <laughs> and how did he respond to that? He has continuously said he doesn't have any issues. Mm-hmm. And it's and then, you know, when I get him into a logical place where he cannot argue, like obviously every human has issues, right? <laughs> yeah. He's like, what 
he then he's like, what hubris is it for a man to think he doesn't have issues? And I'm like, yeah, I know. Tell me about it <laughs> for real. But it's this thing where he was like, well, I don't need to go to therapy. And that has been his thing for 20 years. I don't need therapy. I just need you to be happy. I need you to get better. I need you to stop dissociating. I, you know, and I'm like, okay, that's a, that's a codependent way of living. I don't want to live that way. You do what you need for your happiness and joy, and I do what I need. I'm responsible for me. And he could not get that through his head. It was, and I think about the mind blindness, and I think about the lack of perspective of other people's emotions and things like that. And I'm trying to sort out why he has such a hard time with it. But now I don't care anymore. I don't care why it's hard for him. He just has to go deal with it. That's finally, finally where I came to. And when I said, you go find a therapist, I've got mine. I'm, this is it. This is, this is your job. You do you, I do me. Then we go forward from there. And he has this tendency. It is like a nightmare for me. He has so much forceful energy and it's like un it's bottomless. It's endless. He could just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk forever at the same level of intensity and even ramp up as we go to get this thing solved, to like manhandle this solution. And I keep telling him that I can't fix this. I can't tell you what the solution is. Please let's end this conversation for whatever topic of the day it is. But we would go three, four, six, sometimes eight hours long and I wouldn't eat or drink. And it was like at the end of it, it, I completely and utterly depleted and he's still angry and he still feels unmet in his needs. And all of these things are still the problem. So what I told him was no more of these conversations. And he had a problem with that. And so I made a deal. I said, okay, look. I will go to couples counseling because he kept saying, I don't, I don't get, we're working on us. How is me going to counseling by myself? I don't even know what I need. Tell me what to fix. (laughs) And I would say, I'm not giving you a list of things to fix. That's something for you to discover. And he just couldn't go there. And that's, you know, that's why I kept coming back. Okay. Maybe he genuinely lacks the self-reflection to be able to to do this but still that is not my job and so I said fine I will make a deal with you I will go to couples therapy if you agree to stop these conversations I will not do this anymore and I had continued to engage in it and I had continued to allow it to happen and I and I finally told him I have to stop doing things that are destructive for me. I have to stop hurting myself. I'm hurting myself, babe. This is, I'm giving parts of myself and energy that I do not have to live and be alive in the world and to function. I'm giving it to you and it isn't fixing it. And and I got this picture of being a bottomless ocean. There's just this vast, and bottomless ocean. And I'm hovering over this ocean with a little bitty bucket and I'm pouring into this ocean and nothing I pour in affects change. Nothing does anything. It doesn't do anything. I'm just pouring all of my precious 
stuff into this ocean. And even if it were diamonds, it would just float down to the bottom and be meaningless. And that's where I began to realize as I reflected on how I really felt is that everything is meaningless. It's purposeless. Nothing is ever going to, nothing I'm doing is going to get me where I want to go. So I withdrew all of it. I stopped everything. I stopped having sex with him. I stopped trying to fix it. I stopped trying to have those conversations. I just said, I'm done. I cannot fix this. I quit. Those conversations are so exhausting. I call them word salad roundabouts because Mm. just a bunch of words and you're just going round and round. And like you said, that conversation, you had them up to eight hours. I've been in those conversations as well with my husband and they're not productive because the communication, it's just, um, it's not there. And when you consider the anger that can build up and the frustration inside of us and their anxiety, those are, it makes it explosive. And, and we walk away from it. And, you know, this is all, these are all of the conversations. It's like a drip, drip, drip that, that just feed into the Cassandra syndrome. I wanted to ask you about his meltdown. So Mm -hmm. after he would have a meltdown, how would he react? Um, what was his behavior like the next day? Did he remember what he talked about? Or was it like nothing happened? He would be withdrawn. It's always between me and him. Our cycle has been him being angry, him withdrawing, and me coming and drawing him out. Mm-hmm. And I did it because I couldn't bear the silence. I couldn't bear him being moody. I did it because I couldn't stand it. And it was, and he would even comment. The only time you come after me is if I'm withdrawn from you, I don't like that. And I'm saying, I don't either. I don't want to live this way. And, but if I wouldn't come after him, he would have another meltdown. It was like this short cycle that we were on. And I knew if I don't manage this, I'm going to deal with it in about 12 hours. And so for the longest time, because I couldn't see a way out, I couldn't see how to break the cycle. Um, I just did what I had to do to survive. And I lived in that survival mode of placating, calming, touching him, soothing him, pulling him out, being very gentle, tell, you know, just coddling, really. Do you think that your husband relied on your happiness to make him happy? That uh... 100%. And he would even say it. He even vocalized it. I would be happy if you were happy. Can't you just be happy? Mm-hmm. And it was like, an, like a mountain crushing down on my chest because I knew it wasn't right. But I couldn't get to what was correct. You know, it took so long, this process of me sorting out. Okay. He's telling me, I just need to be happy and then he'll be happy. I know this is incorrect. What is the truth? And then going down that, you know, trail until I realize I'm responsible for my happiness. I am miserable. Okay. That means I get to do something about it. What am I going to do about it? What are my choices? Oh my God. I have choices. That's a revelation because I grew up not having any choices. I was, I was 
put in the situation and taught as a child that I did not get to have boundaries, not just I wasn't neglected in being taught. It was that I was taught the opposite. You don't belong to you. You belong to your parents and you belong to God. And it's whatever they say. And your parents are as good as God. So whatever they say, you know, and you don't get to have any boundaries. You don't get to choose because even if you do choose, it's going to be overridden by the strongest voice in the room. And in my marriage, that was my husband's voice. It's amazing how our childhood can just impact us. What we grew up with just becomes normalized. So then Mm -hmm. we, as adults, carry that into our adulthood and um, our relationships. And we feel like we don't have a choice. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's just auto-accommodating everybody, insta-yesing everybody, and you just become so detached from yourself. And you feel like it's it's just a, a, a bottomless pit of misery. Yeah. Over the years, I started to, I read the book Boundaries about 12 years ago now. And it started the process of understanding, I get to have this. I am my own autonomous being. I get to say what I think and what I feel. Okay, here we go. But it took so many years because boundaries are really crushingly hard. They're Mm -hmm. so hard. And if they weren't, everybody would have them. Everybody would be super healthy, right? Because it's just a really difficult thing because when you put up a boundary, the other person gets to have whatever reaction they're going to have. And then you deal with that reaction, you know, so it's not, you don't have them in a vacuum. And something that I have found really helpful is breaking down boundaries into three things, saying what you want, what you need, and what your limits are. And this is something in my own processing that I've been able to say, okay, this is what makes up a boundary for me. I get to say what I want. Okay, I want intimacy. I get to say what I don't want. I don't want tension and I don't want to be blamed for things that I'm not responsible for. And my limit is you yelling at me or you bolstering at me or you not listening when I'm telling trying to communicate to you. You know, these are these are the components that make up boundaries for me and it's just been really really helpful to have those broken down in my head as a way of even being able to write it down. Okay, Sally, what is it that you do want? What do you need right now? Because when somebody would ask me those questions, I couldn't answer them because I had been in survival mode so long. I had just been accommodating so long. I didn't know. I didn't know what my limits were. All I knew is that at some point, I started screaming and melting down and my brain became mush because at some point a limit had been crossed and I didn't want to continue to live my life that way. I want to live in peace. I want to be steady. I don't want to be driven by my emotions. I don't want to have my needs unmet for the rest of my life. And so when I started being able to communicate those things that started opening up his ability to meet me there or not. 
but it opens up the opportunity for things to shift and change. And yeah. then you shift and change and grow and you start to set boundaries and it's not uncommon to get pushback because there's a lot of boundary destroyers out there that say, wait a minute, now mm-hmm. you're not doing what I want you to do. You're not meeting my needs. So you do get pushback. And that's one of the reasons why setting boundaries are difficult. It's not easy. But mm-hmm. I say the more that you get in touch with what it means to you and what your desires are and what you want. And I love your concept that that you just spoke of. And that sounds like that has really made a shift in your life. Last time we talked, that is absolutely the decision that I was walking out. And the reason I was doing that is because when I set these boundaries, I had to have myself in place. I had to be safe. I had to know I was going to be provided for and that my I would have a space for myself and my children and that no matter what his reaction, no matter what his choice, I was going to be okay. And I recognized I can't say what I want and what I need and what my limit is until I know I'm going to be okay if he decides that's a deal breaker. Because if he leaves or if he blows up or whatever he does, I have to know that I'm set. It's all about being safe. It's all about knowing I've got my two feet on the ground. And when I come to you, I'm coming to you clearly and calmly. And I've thought this through and I have a plan and I'm going to be okay. Regard, I do not need you to have one reaction or another. I am not dependent on your reaction for my life. And that is incredibly freeing. In the very last, and I had determined it was going to be the last one I ever involved was involved in, the very last one of those conversations happened a few nights ago. And at the end of it, I screamed at the top of my lungs, yes, I want a divorce because this has to stop. And I had never said those words. I've never said I want a divorce. I, I, don't want, I don't actually want to divorce him. But if it's not going to stop, I will not be abused. Period. Not happening. So I screamed it at him. I ended the conversation and I walked out of the room. And so from that point, he followed me around saying, what do I need to do? Do I need to call a lawyer? Do I need to blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, I don't, I don't care what you do. You just go get a therapist. Do you deal with whatever it is you need to deal with? I'm out. And so we had had that conversation. And in the process of all of that, he, he went and found a, a couples therapist who specializes in sexual trauma because I, I brought a lot of sexual trauma into the marriage unfortunately, and then have experienced continuous sexual trauma from our interaction as well. And so he got a therapist. We had our first session yesterday and we have individual sessions set up and she is asking him, are you willing to wait? Are you willing to walk this out patiently? Because his problem has been, I need my sexual needs met right now. I cannot wait anymore. The time clock is ticking. I'm not waiting the rest of my life. And then if you do heal and you are all good, I still don't believe that I'm going to have my needs met. And, I've, and I'm just finally, I'm at the stance, hands up, 
that's not my job. I can't fix that in you. That's a mindset that belongs to you and you have to change it. Go fix it. And so as long, you know, cause I have an appointment next week with a lawyer. And so I was telling my friends who have been walking with me through this, I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. You guys, I have these meetings, consultation with a couples counselor, and I have a meeting with a marriage divorce lawyer. So <laughs> I don't know. We're going to see which way this goes. But the nightmare part of it has been that middle ground of that limbo that we had talked about in another conversation, that limbo of, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where I'm going to end up, but I am going to be prepared. I will not be caught off guard and I will not be abused because I don't care if he understands that he's abusing me or not. All of it has become irrelevant because I get to choose my life from here on out. I get to choose what kind of home my children grow up in. And it's, that's kind of brand new for me. So what are some of the things that you're doing? So now it's, it's like you're walking a tightrope and you don't know which side you're going to fall on to, you know, to stay or to leave. But I like what you said that you still have to prepare. So Mm -hmm. what kind of things are you doing on a daily basis to prepare in case you do make the decision to leave so that you're ready? I went and got a job. Um, I went and I'm waiting tables again. It's, I'm a, I'm a social person, so it works well for me. And I like the action of the job. Um, and so I went and got a job so that I would have income that I can put away. I, as I said earlier, I went and got a personal loan paid off on my credit cards and that money is in a savings account that just belongs to me and he can't touch. And so I'm going to continue to put money into savings. And I think that that is, I feel like my safeguard. I do the work. I, I work really hard. I keep on keeping my boundaries with him because another thing that I told him is our living situation. It's not acceptable. It, he brought us into it five years ago as a temporary solution while we were going to build a house and everything has just been delayed and not happened. And so There are things that I have made very clear to him that I will not do. And now he's listening. I I don't know. The magic of screaming, I'm going to divorce you, I guess. I don't know. But he's listening and I'm keeping my I'm keeping my activity of putting money aside. I'm keeping my P.O. box unless there's any kind of mail that I need to do with, you know, just to make sure that I have safety and security and places from my feet to land, no matter what happens. That's great. And I, that's one thing that I preach is that, you know, women have their own bank accounts and all of those things that are important so that, you know, you have all of that information at your disposal so that if you do decide to leave, then you're, you're much, you're empowered to be able mm-hmm. to make that choice rather than, you know, I want to leave and I don't have any skills. I don't have any money. I don't have a bank account. I've, you know, right. lived on my own. That, that's very scary. All of those things are a lot to deal with. So mm. when you start to prepare, I think what you're doing is wonderful because that preparation time does take time, but every little thing you do, like, when you got that job, how did you feel? Uh, amazing. 
like I was in control of my life. And that's, that's what's so striking about this is when I said, you know what, stay or go, I'm not going to be caught with my pants down. I'm going to take charge of the things that I actually can control. Once I stop trying to control him and manage him, oh my God, the amount of emotional and mental energy I had that I could put into things that I actually wanted to see progress in my own life. I started taking care of so many practical things that I had put off because I felt so hopeless and so defeated and so under the ground that it nothing mattered. And then when I said, I'm done with feeling that way, I'm done with that being my story, I started just naturally taking care of things that I had neglected that are my responsibility that I can do for myself. It was amazing. It's amazing watching it unfold. It is. It's beautiful to watch. And and as you do each one of those things, you got the job. And how did it feel when you opened the bank account? When I put that money into that savings account, it was, I was walking on air for days. It was it was spectacular. I got every single thing that you're giving me goosebumps <laughs> because it is. It's just the little things, because otherwise it seems so overwhelming when we say, you know, mm-hmm. I want a divorce. I want to leave. It, the pain becomes so much that you just want out of the situation. Yes. And oh my God, the, yes. The worst thing to do is just, you know, make a, a rash decision. It does take time and it does take preparation. And that's, you know, that's my whole thing that I preach is you, once you shift the focus from your husband to yourself and you say, this is what I'm responsible for. I'm responsible for my own happiness. I'm responsible for, for me to be independent, to empower myself, to live the kind of life that I want to live and I deserve to live. And then you start making those simple choices. And it's not always easy, but one thing builds upon the other. You open the bank account. Wow, that feel, felt great. <laughs> I get a job and now you're out with people and, and getting some money coming in to put in that bank account. All of those things are building blocks to build, rebuild your self-esteem, to rebuild your, your worth and to give you the strength and the power to say, this is my life. I want to leave. Or it just gives you the strength to make the shift in your marriage that I can stay, but I'm a different person now. Because really, that's it. I think that's the key of a marriage is for us to be individuals who are interdependent with one another, not codependent, not independent where you don't need each other, but finding that balance. And I can't do that balance by myself. I cannot believe I've been trying to do that balance by myself for 20 years. But whatever woke me up, I finally did wake up. The, the long progress that happened of, of healing and waking up to choices and all of those things. And to be able to say to, to my partner, these are the things that I want. This is what I don't want. And him to be able to say the same to me, for me to be able to make my own choices and to have a sense of control and autonomy of my life and for him to feel the same way and us to partner together. And when we say the words, me and him, that is the words that we say, but it's never been balanced. It's never felt that way to me. I've always felt like he tried to father me. 
but nobody can father you that you don't allow them to, right? So standing in your own space, being your own human, being my own grown woman, you know, self, then I'm a better partner than he gets to choose. And it's freedom. Because there has to be freedom of choice in our marriage. There has to be. There has to be freedom of choice in our sex life, in our finances, in how we raise our children. We have to be free. And we have to be free to continue to choose one another. But when that is so painful that we begin to shut down and withdraw, you have to make changes. And so for better or worse, whatever it is that we end up doing, It's going to be because we are both free, autonomous people choosing one another and choosing this way forward. And the only way that he can truly meet me is if I tell the truth and I say it out loud and I lay the boundaries of what I want and what I need and what my limits are and him to honor that. And that's, I mean, I think that we try to make it really complicated, but it isn't complicated. It's incredibly, stupidly simple. It's just really hard. Yeah, it's simple yet hard because there's so many layers to it when you're dealing with two human beings and two human beings with very different communication styles. It's like speaking a different language that mm-hmm. becomes so complex. But boy, amen, sister, I applaud you. You are doing great. Is there any words of advice you would have for some of our listeners out there? Because I have women contacting me every day that are in the same position as you, you know, they want the divorce. They can't take it another minute. What would you say to them? Make a plan, make a plan, have a list of things that you need to have in place that when you put your boundaries up with your partner, then whatever his choice is, whatever he decides, either way, you are safe in your set because that level of security Because you're not looking to him. Women are at a disadvantage if they are not the main breadwinners in the family. And so we're coming up from behind. And so much is given to us with that sense of empowerment that we're not feeling dependent. That is the number one thing that I see. I want to leave, but I can't because of I'm dependent. I have children. I have the, and they have their list of reasons why, but there is a way. There is a way to make a plan, whatever that looks like for you as an individual. For me, when I finally was like, okay, that's it. I'm not doing this. It just started coming to me. It was just like a download, PO box, bank account, get a loan, pay off your credit cards, because that is what I needed to do. And, and the one number one thing that I got out of the recent book that I read, The thing that's changed something in the momentum and trajectory for me was her saying, listen to your body, listen to your intuition. Anybody who has suffered with Cassandra knows and understands that their self-belief and trusting themselves has been whittled away and dampened and squashed and killed. But we can and must listen to our heart listen to our gut. For those of us that are of faith, believe that the Lord is leading you and speaking to you in that moment and that you can trust what you are hearing. You can trust your body. When you begin to shut down, notice what's happening. That's not 
random. You are reacting for a reason because your body will tell you the truth. Your body will not lie to you. If you're being touched and you are hyperventilating or having some kind of reaction to it or shutting down, if if you're being spoken to in a way and you start to feel closed in and trapped, notice that. That is incredibly helpful and necessary information. We can trust ourselves. Because it's never just one thing with women like us that suffer from Cassandra syndrome. It's a buildup. It's like all of these drops, like drops in a bucket or the frog, they say that's boiling, you know, slowly on the stove. It's not just Mm -hmm. any one thing. It's all of these things. Yeah. At that build yeah. up, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're sick and you're depressed. Yeah, you yeah. Well, and then it's really hard to make a plan because mm-hmm. you're in such a bad place, and it becomes a vicious cycle. So, I guess before making the plan, just begin to notice. Be brave enough to notice. Be gentle enough with yourself to notice how you feel, what you really think. And begin saying that out loud. Write it down. Begin to log this. These are my daily experiences. This is what's happening inside of me. And then you can look at that and you can say, am I okay with this or am I going to make a change? And then as you begin heading that direction, your plan will begin to formulate. That's wonderful. I um, also think too, is it's good to keep a health journal. So, you know, just yeah. journal, I've had a headache, I feel depressed. Yes. And then in that health journal, you take a look at what's been going on in your life. And then you're able to make the connection like, oh, you know, I, I have had a migraine for four days. Let me go back and see what's been going on in my life. And then you say, wow, now, you know, this is stressful. I have this stressful conversation Yeah, this meltdown, you know, whatever it may be. You start to then marry those two and say, oh, now I see the link between them. And I like what you said, it starts with just noticing. So now, how are you feeling about your future? I feel more hope and peace and warmth. And actually, I feel so much love for my husband because I'm free to love him. I'm free to feel what I feel. It doesn't mean he's going to choose me. It doesn't mean he's going to do these things that I want him to do, but I get to feel what's inside of myself now. And I am a warm and open and loving and generous person. It's who I am, regardless of how he's been seeing me or whatever, you know, whatever the feedback has been. So I'm standing in my own space in the world unapologetically. I am being in the world as myself and it feels effing amazing. (laughs) It's how it feels. <laughs> Sally, it's been a wonderful hour. Very powerful. I wish you the best. I know that all good things are coming your way. Thank you for sharing with our listeners. It's been great having this conversation with you. Thank you so much, Marco. That was a great hour. Sally gave us so much to think about. And if you want to know more about how you can heal from Cassandra syndrome, head over to our website, HealingCassandra.com and subscribe. And remember, you don't have to travel this journey alone. Join our membership community of thriving women like Sally, and you will receive support, encouragement, 
and strength on your healing journey. It makes all the difference when you have a support system of women who share the same challenges and difficulties as you. Well, that's all for today. We'll see you next time. And remember, be kind to yourself.